Our scripture reading is 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Father, we come before you and we know that we've come in with mindsets that don't match up with your word and your truth. I pray as your servant Rick preaches your word that it would penetrate our hearts, Lord, and that we would walk out of this place changed by the truth. And it's in his son's name we pray these things. Amen. Good morning. morning. It's a new day. That means new mercies every day. It's a day of new mercies from God. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, and I always hope that you do, please open up to the book of 1 John. Last week, we started a sermon series. We're going to work our way through this book of the Bible, and today we're looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Something else happened this past week, other than us starting a brand new sermon series. A dude in Hong Kong received a crowd beating. He came out of a movie theater, and a crowd whooped him. Here's why. He had just seen Avengers Endgame, came out of the movie shouting out spoilers about what happened in the movie to the crowd, the people that were about to go in and watch the movie. And the crowd beat the mess out of him. The next thing the guy knows, he's on the ground bleeding and medical personnel are having to attend to him. True story in Hong Kong. Now, personally, I am a Christian and I am a pastor, so I can't condone such behavior, but I understand it. (laughs) 11 or 12 years of waiting and anticipation, 21 movies all building up to the release of Avengers Endgame. And this dude clearly did not in any shape, form, or fashion value his life. So I can't condone what the crowd did, but I completely understand it. Here's a quote from the news article that I read about this. Here's a quote from it. He's just lucky he wasn't killed. Well, if nothing else, this incident will stop anyone else from spoiling. And we don't like spoilers. Like, none of us do. Like, if you're into basketball, let's say, it's basketball season. Like, a lot of times I can't be home watching Carolina play. So I'll DVR it. And and so I make sure that I don't look at my ESPN app. I don't take any phone calls. I don't look at Facebook. I don't want to know because I want to get home and watch it. I don't want anyone to spoil my fun of watching the game and what might, might happen there. So we we don't want spoilers. We like surprises, don't we? Most of the time, for the most part, depending on the nature of the surprise, surprises are fun. They're good. So much so that when me and Jamie got married, I did all of the honeymoon arrangements, and I kept it secret. 
didn't tell her where we were going. So it was like the week of, and I just told her how to pack. I said, just pack this stuff, not this stuff. And I didn't tell her where we were going. And it was my plan to hopefully somehow get us to land in Cancun before she ever knew that that's where we were going. Uh, but I actually changed my mind because we got to the airport. We we're going to security. Like, it actually occurred to me, like, if they ask her what is your destination and she doesn't know in a post-9-11 world, that might not be a good thing. And so I'm in Cancun and she's in the joint. Like, so that, that wouldn't make for a good honeymoon story. But I wanted to surprise her. Well, then I did, and it was fun, and, and she got to know there. But my point is that we all like surprises, and there's a time for surprises. There's a place for surprises. There are times we don't want with the spoilers. Let me tell you one time, at least one time for each and every one of us that we don't want, that we, we should not not want the surprise. We should go into it completely knowing ahead of time. We want the spoiler ahead of time. And that's concerning eternal life. You better know that you know that you know that you know if, in fact, you have eternal life. You don't want to have to second-guess that. You want God to spoil it ahead of time. You want God to let the cat out of the bag ahead of time. You want to be completely in the know before you ever step into eternity. And here's the good news. We can know, we can know whether or not we have received eternal life. Jesus himself said, here's God's promise to us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. So that is God's promise. Anyone and everyone who places their life in the hands of Jesus, anyone and everyone who trusts in who Jesus is, he's God, what he did on the cross, died to pay for our sin, went in the ground, in the, in the grave, rose again. Anyone who believes in him will receive eternal life. Not maybe, not probably, not likely. No, will in fact receive eternal life. It's guarantee. We all like short things, right? It's a guarantee from God. So I want to I ask and answer this question real quick. What is eternal life? You might hear this in church. We just read it in the verse. Eternal life. What is that? And I think that we have a very narrow view of what that means. Like typically, I think for a lot of us, when we say the term eternal life, we're just thinking about heaven. Like one day getting to go to heaven and praise God that that's part of it, but that's not the fullness of eternal life. That the fact that we get to go to heaven is only a part of it. Eternal life is much bigger, better, it's broader, it's more comprehensive than just I get to go to heaven one day. Eternal life is this. To have received eternal life means to have received eternal light. Eternal life means to have received eternal light. So as 1 Peter 2.9 says, we have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. Eternal life is the sum total of what it means to be positionally in the light of God. Positionally. It means that the light of God is now your realm. 
The light of God is now your reality. The light of God is now your, your habitat. It is what you inhabit. It's what inhabits you. So eternal life means having received Jesus Christ into your life. Well, it tells us in 1 John, just a few verses there, verse 2, Jesus is the eternal life. So to receive eternal life means to receive Jesus Christ personally into our lives. To receive eternal life means that we have received the grace of God and we've been forgiven of every sin. To receive eternal life and light means that we are now a new creation A new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. We are now children of God, whereas before we were not children of God. Now because of what he has given to us, we carry the mantle of son or daughter of God most high. It's an amazing thing. It's not just heaven. I get to be called a child of God, a child of light. It means that I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit now I belong to him forever and ever. I have been sealed as belonging, as being one of God's possessions forever and ever. Because of that sealing and the indwelling Holy Spirit, I now, because of that, get to experience God's presence in my life daily. His power in my life daily. Provision, sustenance, grace, sufficiency in my life. Because of having received eternal life, I am free, free to enjoy him. I have a actual, good, loving relationship and fellowship with God. And on top of all of that, I live now with the hope of the assurance and the guarantee that when I breathe my last breath in in this world, my life in the next world begins in God's home. That when it's all over here, I get ushered into the home of God. So that is the sum total of eternal life. And it doesn't just begin in the hereafter, it begins in the here and now. It begins, eternal life begins at the moment of conversion, at the moment of first belief, the moment that you first say, I take you at your word, God, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, the savior died for me, he paid for my sin, I trust him, I give my life to him, and in that moment, I enter into eternal life because eternal life enters into me. God promises to give eternal life to all who trust in Jesus Christ. And we can know that we know that we know that we have received eternal life. That is actually the point of the book of 1 John. So the writer, the Apostle John, writes in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing the entire book is that we would know. So we don't have to spend a second of our life doubting or questioning, in fear, worrying, or wondering. You can know with 100% crystal clear clarity and confidence whether or not you have in fact received eternal life and received the eternal light of God in you. In the verses that we're looking at this morning, helps us to evaluate our lives, our heart, our beliefs, our thoughts, so that we can know whether or not that's true of us. So right now in this room, are we in light or are we in darkness? We're very clearly in light. 
we're very clearly under the splendor and majesty and warmth of fluorescent lighting. Check out my pores, everybody. I'm going to start a, a lighting fund so we can actually get something in here that's warm and comfortable. But we're clearly very much under light. And I promise you that if we killed the lights in this room, it'd be dark. And there would be no dispute that it's dark in here because this room doesn't have any windows. It would be pitch black, bleak blackness, like dark in here. So you know right now there's light. If the lights were off, darkness. We know, right? We know which we're in. Are we in light or are we in darkness? Spiritually, it's the same way. God has called the believer out of darkness and into his light. So we're either in the light of God or we're not. It can't be both. In the same way that we know whether or not we're in physical light, we can know whether or not we are in spiritual light. And that's the point of the whole book, and in particular, the verses that we're looking at this morning. So we're going to look. Start at verse 5 in chapter 1. It says, God is light. Now, during the week, if I run into you, and I ask you, hey, fill in the blank. God is, you would probably say, love or good. All right. God is good, and then I'd have to retort all the time and all the time God's good because you have to do that, right, as a Christian. (laughs) Me and Jennifer are having a conversation, just the two of us up here. All right. Most of us, that's how we would fill in the blank. God is love, and he is. Praise God that God is love. I mean, that is so good to know that that is true, that God is love. But before the Bible tells us, like in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. Before it tells us that, it tells us that God is light. The fact that we're told before God is love that he is light actually tells us something significant. It's almost like you can't really understand that God is love unless you understand that God is light. So we need to determine what it means in this this verse that God is light. So does this mean that God is electromagnetic radiation of varying wavelengths? That's how a physicist defines light. Electromagnetic radiation of varying wavelengths. Oh, so smart. I looked it up. Thank you, Google. Well, it doesn't mean that, right? Clearly, it doesn't mean that God is radiation. Or, or does it mean that God travels at 186,000 miles per second? Because that's how fast light is. Is that what it means? Like, no. Like, when we read the verse, God is light, clearly we're not saying that God is physical light. That's not what it means in the text. Now, if you read the Bible, you get the sense that God is light. And there are many texts in Scripture that will point to God that he is true, that he is pure, that he is holy, that he's right, that he's perfect in every way. So in that sense, Scripture will tell us that God is light. He's good. He's true. He's pure. holy. But that is not what it means in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. That is not what it's saying here. In context, God is light here in verse 5 means that God is life. The word light is here a synonym for the word life. Let me make my case. At the end of verse 1, just a few verses earlier, Jesus is referred to as the word of life. In the very next verse, John 1, 1, 2, 
Jesus is referred to as the eternal life. The same writer who wrote 1 John wrote the Gospel of John. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4 of the Gospel of John, in him, referring to Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The writer in his gospel, the writer in his epistle, 1 John, is using light synonymously with life to make the point that God is life. We shouldn't doubt that God is life. God is eternal. God is immortal. God is from everlasting to everlasting. God is self-existing. There has never been a time when God has not been. He always has been and he always will be. Therefore, he is life. He's nothing if he is not life. The fullness of it, the origin of it, the source of it in himself and everywhere else. So God is life and as such... He's the source of it. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, say the first week of creation, the God who is light spoke, let there be light. And through that verbal command spoken by the God who is light, through that let there be light, enters this day one, two, three, four, five, six of God creating life, plants animals, ultimately mankind. But God is not just the origin or the source of physical life. More importantly for us today is the fact that he is the source of spiritual life. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we are born into eternal death. It's what Ephesians 2 tells us. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're born into sin. We're born in, with a con- this condition. You heard the Hulk when I said that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I know you. Well, son, you got a condition. <laughs> we're born big old green rage monster, the Hulk, with sin in us. We we're born with a, a sinful disposition against God and a sinful status against God or before God. That's what we're born into. We're born into spiritual darkness. It's what Ephesians 2 tells us. We're born alienated from the very light of God. But then Ephesians 2 tells us, because he loved us so much, he then shined his light into our darkness that we who are dead may have life. That we who are born in darkness may be called out of that darkness into his marvelous light. So it is God who cleanses us, regenerates us, causes us to be born again, causes us to be saved. It is God who takes us out of that sin, death, darkness, causes us out of it and into the life that is found only in his light. So God is life and the source of all life, physical and spiritual. Understood? So in verse 5, if God is light means God is life, then that verse also adds, in him there is no darkness at all. 
then therefore that means that in God there is no death. If God is life and there is no darkness in him, the darkness there is a reference to death. There is no death in God. Death does not abide in God, and God does not abide in death. Now, if that's what verse 5 means, and it is, now we can understand verse 6. So look at it. If we say we have fellowship with him, referring to God who is light, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We lie. If we have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship, what's the word fellowship? So in the Greek, it's the word koinonia. This is a word that gets completely butchered by Christians these days. I don't know who started it. We need to track it down. We misuse this word, and I am on a personal quest and life campaign to eradicate the misuse of the word fellowship among Christians. Because we tend to use it just to mean fellowship. Like fellowship meaning just hang out. Hey, come on, let's come on and have some fellowship together. When all we're saying is that let's just hang out. That is not what the word koinonia means. I can have a relationship with an inanimate object. I promise you, me and my Taylor guitar, we've got a relationship. I love it, and it loves me. It's my precious. I promise you, I've got a relationship with that thing. You could have a good relationship with something. You could have a bad relationship with it. You could have a trivial, casual, it doesn't really matter relationship with something. You could have a bad relationship with a boss who's a big jerk face. Right? Smells like beef and cheese. Like you could have a bad relationship with someone. I love to hate Duke. I've got a relationship with Duke. It's love, hate, and I love to hate Duke. Right? Thank you. I'm a believer. So the word fellowship doesn't mean just hang out. It's not referring to a casual thing. It's not referring to anything trivial. The word fellowship in the Bible, that word koinonia, is referring to communion. Communion with another person. So it's not a casual thing, even if it's a good casual thing. Communion or fellowship is only the result of covenant. You can only have fellowship or communion with something if you are in covenant with that thing or that person. Communion, just look at what's the word that's in the word communion. You can't have communion without union. Like, that's what it means. So, for, for me, I commune with my wife, Jamie. And we commune in the truest sense of what communion is because me and Jamie have entered into the union of covenant through marriage. We've been united. So, I have Fellowship with Jamie in the fullest sense of what fellowship is because we have been joined together in covenant. Joined together. Two have become one. That's what covenant is. In essence, what covenant does is that it changes someone's identity. Like, I'm not single Rick. I'm married Rick. Jamie is my wife. I am her husband. My identity has been changed because I have entered into a covenant relationship with Jamie. So we've entered into this thing, and it's because of that that we have fellowship with one another. And it's always of the sweet kind. Sweet fellowship. Because around Christians, that's the only kind that there is. Sweet fellowship. 
So that's what me and Jamie have. We have sweet koinonia. It sounds like a barbecue sauce. Sweet koinonia. In, I don't know. I'm in rare form this morning. In verse 6, look at it. If we say we have fellowship with God, communion with God, if I'm in covenant with God, yet if I walk in darkness, I lie. So what does it mean to walk in darkness? The word walk is the Greek word peripatomen, which means to live. So live in death is what the phrase is saying. No one can say in rightly or in their right mind, I have been joined or united to the God who is life if I am still in death, if I'm inhabiting death, if death is inhabiting me. To live in darkness means to live in death. So that's Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. So we were born spiritually dead. That's our identity at birth. That's, that's the way that we come into the world, zombies. We can't help but walk in darkness. We're born into sin, and therefore we are in death, in darkness. We inhabit it, and it inhabits us. That's how we come into the world. That's our identity. So the point of verse 6 is that no one whose identity is still in sin, in death, and in darkness, no one of which that is true can rightly say, I have fellowship with the God who is light, who is life. Dead things cannot commune with live things. There cannot be any fellowship between the two. That's the question that's asked in 2 Corinthians 6.14. What fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer is clear and obvious. It's what? None. None. There is no fellowship. There's no communion. There's no covenant between God who is light and death because there is no death in him. There's no darkness in him. He cannot abide in it and it does not abide in him. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like this. Consider even the smallest of lights. That's a little tiny light. And even in that little light right there, there is no darkness in it. You know that darkness cannot commune with this little itty-bitty light? This light actually scatters darkness. Darkness cannot fellowship with this light. They're mutually exclusive. They're two radically different things. And so if it's true that light cannot even abide in this, or darkness cannot abide in this light, it's the same way spiritually. If we're still in our sin and still in our darkness and still in our death, if that is our identity as a human being, we cannot be joined to God. It's like taking two sides of the magnet. You know how they oppose each other? It's the same thing. And the only way that can be fixed is if me who is in darkness has the light of God shined in me. Only if God shines his light into my darkness, then I can enter into fellowship with him. And that's only possible if God changes my identity first. He has to change who I am before that takes place. So that's the point of verse 7. If we walk in the light, then we have fellowship 
with him. So to walk means to live. To walk means to live. So the only way that we can live in the light of God is if he has pulled me out of darkness and into his light. The only way I can live in the light of God is if he has shined his light into my darkness. The only way that can take place is if he has taken me, a creature of darkness, and somehow transformed me into a creature of light. That's the only way that it can take place. And the way that he does it is by cleansing our sin By the blood of Jesus Christ is what it tells us in that verse. We must first be cleansed of our sin. And it takes place through the blood of Jesus, which is a reference to the cross. It's a reference to the sacrifice of Jesus. So in the Old Testament days, just to explain why there's blood language in the Bible. In Old Testament days, a person had to bring an animal to the priest. Then the person would lay their hands upon that animal's head symbolizing the transferring over of that person's sin onto that innocent animal. Then the priest would take a knife, grab the head of the animal, and slit its throat in front of everyone. A brutal, horrifying display, a public display of just how bad sin is, of what what the payment for sin is. The payment is death. So then here comes Jesus. The Bible refers to Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the ultimate sacrifice who takes our sin away from us once and for all. So Jesus goes to the cross, and there our sin is transferred over unto him. And he paid the price that we should pay for our sin. He took it upon himself and he paid it as if it belonged to him to pay. And he did it so that sin could be purged from us. We all have a rap sheet before God. It's a long rap sheet. Lust, pride, selfishness, self-centeredness, on and on. Gossip, malice. I mean, just you name it. Every day. It is a long rap sheet. And what Jesus did on the cross, he gave his life through his sacrificial blood, poured it out to expunge our record, to clean the ledger, to wipe it off so that that's no longer on our record. And so there, that's what took place on the cross. Jesus paid for our sin. He died our death. They laid his body in the tomb. And then in the darkness of that grave, light shined. Light shined. He rose again. And now anyone and everyone who places their faith, their life in the hands of Jesus says, I trust you, Lord, that you died for me to pay for my sin. We are forgiven. We receive grace and we receive mercy. And in that moment of belief, we are transformed. We are a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. No longer creatures of darkness. Now creatures of the light. And that's why Jesus sacrificed himself for us, to cleanse us of unrighteousness, to transform us into something completely different. And it's in that new identity, that new status, that I can enter into covenant with Christ. It's because he's wiped the ledger clean. It is because of that that now I can fellowship with God. It is because of that that I have now entered the light and the light has entered me all because of what Jesus did on the cross. So here's the promise. 
It's a promise. All who believe in Jesus will be forgiven. No qualifiers. Nothing nothing else. All who believe in the Son of Jesus Christ will be saved. All, all who trust in Jesus receive the light of God. All. Every one of us. We are united to Jesus. Just like like today where we get married to become one in Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We are immersed into Christ. He comes into us. We are united and it changes us. And we are in fellowship. And that's the only reason we can commune with him was because of the transforming work of his grace as displayed through the cross. So have you believed? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you actually entered into the light? Have you said, God, pull me out of darkness. I want to I be something new. I want to be something different. I'm tired of living in darkness. Have you taken that step of faith? Receiving it. Here's the tricky part. Some people might have possibly kind of sort of said a prayer like that at some point in the past. I think, I think I received Jesus back in the day, or I thought I did, but now I'm not so sure. Did I receive light? Because I, I was hoping I had, but now I'm not sure. And a lot of times, the reason why we will second guess that decision or non-decision, whenever it was, was because we never stepped into it fully. We never understood what it means to actually step into that decision of receiving the light of God. And what it means to receive eternal life begins with a confession, with an actual, sincere, authentic, genuine, heartfelt confession, confessing our sin and confessing our need for saving Because a lot of people will confess, well, yeah, I'm wrong, I did bad. But that's not biblical confession. Biblical confession is saying not just that what I did violated God's standard, but it violated so bad that I deserve eternal judgment, but I need Jesus to save me from judgment. That's confession. It's not just a confessing of sin, but the confessing of I need the Savior. So look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, if we don't confess that we have any sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, do people actually think that they have no sin? Now, there are a few. There are a few. There are not many, but there are a few. They need medication. Because, I mean, even an atheist knows that they're not perfect. They may not call it sin, but no one thinks that they're morally flawless. Like, no one thinks that they're perfect in every way. So, I ask again, do people really say that they have no sin? And the thing is, yeah. Actually, I think it's all of us. Every single one of us says, nah, I don't have any sin. So recently, a guy I hadn't seen in at least 10 years, it might be 12 years, reaches out to me. I, I can't even say I have a friendship with this person. Like, I, I barely know them, and I hadn't seen them in 10 or 12 years. Reaches out to me, can we meet? And he reaches out to me because he knows I'm a pastor, and his marriage has fallen apart. 
So I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll meet with you. And so we meet together, and he begins to share very openly and honestly, very transparent about his marriage over the last 17 years. And he itemized this list of awfulness, like major problems and major issues, like over 17 years, 15 years, 12 years. I mean, all these things happening like every year for 17 for 17 years. His wife, who I actually know better than him, that I've known longer than him, um, she's probably dealing with some depression issues, some bipolar issues. So that exasperates the situation. Their teen daughter is in counseling because the two parents can't get along, don't get along well. So now the teenager, that's all coming on her. And so she's in counseling. Like it is, it is an awful, awful mess. They've uh, spoken and he's moving out in two weeks. And the only reason he hadn't moved out already was just, it's just money and logistics. Got to find an apartment and buy some plates, basically. So he's literally getting in touch with me on the eve of separation. It's all but done. 17 years worth of stuff. So then he goes on to share with me that, Rick, I've never cheated on her. I've never looked at pornography. I mean, I just work. I provide for the family. I'm not addicted to anything. Like, I don't do, I'm not, I, I haven't done anything wrong. And then he goes on um, to just give me more laundry list of a bunch of stuff. Um, it shared that she's making some case against him. Like she's just trying to make me out to look like the bad guy, that it's on me. And he looked me in the eye. He says, Rick, I've done nothing wrong. And I looked at this guy who's probably like 280 pounds, six foot one and probably 5% body fat. And I looked him in the eye, and I'm like, how dare you say that you've done nothing wrong? And he kind of recalled back at me. I'm like, for 17 years, you've ignored all the warning signs. For 17 years, you've neglected all of the red flags. You've seen the condition that your wife has been dealing with. You're daughter is in counseling because you can't get along with your wife. Six years ago, she did this. Ten years ago, she did that. Five years ago, this happened. Four months ago, this happened. And you've done nothing. You have swept it under the rug. And now, as you're moving out, you're getting in touch with me to see if I can possibly help you. And I looked them dead in the eye, and I said, in this tone, you have failed. You have failed as a husband. You have failed as a father. You're the one that's supposed to be putting those people first. And you've ignored it all. And now you're losing your family, if not already lost it, all because you thought you'd sweep it under the rug and magically it would get better on its own. You have sinned. And this dude, mountain of a guy, looks right at me and he just starts crying. And he owned it for 17 years in complete denial. I've done nothing wrong. Kidding me. 
you bold-faced liar. You're a liar. Now, that tells us a couple of things. One, never go to Rick for counseling. (laughs) And what's funny is between the two elders, I'm probably the more nicer one. (laughs) If you really want it hard, go to Phil. Don't get a Rick. The other thing is, it just goes to show how blind we can be to our own sin. How utterly blind. This guy's not a believer. He just didn't, he can't see it. He couldn't see it. He wouldn't see it. Didn't want to see it. Verse 8 tells us, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves because our heart lies to us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Folks, in an academic way, in like a general way, we'll say, yeah, I'm a sinner. We all say that. But the truth is that our own heart lies to us as to the veracity and the awfulness of our own sin, especially specific sin. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Not my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the world's fault. It's medical issues' fault. It's because I don't have any money. It's always something else's fault. Our own heart lies to us so that we can't see the sin that's right there. So we neglect it. We push it aside. We ignore it. We dismiss it. We justify it. Meanwhile, we are riddled, riddled with it. And the consequences of sin is death, judgment, and darkness. So, folks, we need to see it. We need to own it. And we need to confess it. And that's where the good news, that's where hope comes in. So that's verse 9 in the text. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to get to that place where we actually see ourselves for who we really are and see our sin for what it really is and see just how desperately wicked and sinful we actually are. We're sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We live in darkness, and unless God shines his light, we will forever, ever be in that darkness. But we need to trust the promise of God that all who believe in his Son will be forgiven. got to trust it. And you enter into that trust by confessing. That's what the verse says. Confess our sin. Again, not just I did wrong, but I need the one who can fix my wrong. I need the Savior to fix me, to heal me, to shine his light into me. That is the hope of verse 9. Verse 9, I'm going to mess with some of you because this verse gets misquoted, misused, misapplied. Verse 9. Verse 9 is not about those who are already believers having to confess sin in order to receive forgiveness for sins committed since becoming a believer. That is not what that verse is. I stand by this. As a believer, I never, I'm already saved. I never have to ask God's forgiveness. You know why? Because all of my sin was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. Because the moment that I placed my life in Jesus, I was cleansed fully of all of my sin. Even the ones I'll commit an hour from now and the ones I'll commit 10 years from now. All of my sin was nailed to the cross 
All of it was forgiven. I, at the moment of salvation, I was clothed in the righteousness of God. In God's eyes, I am no longer a sinner in status. I am now a saint, a new creation. Now, I do sin. I'm not saying I don't sin. And I do believe I should confess it every time. And I should repent of it every time. But I need not ask for forgiveness, for that already took place. Every moment that I sin and I enter into moments of confession, you know what that is? It's an opportunity to praise God. God, I had no idea how sinful I I was. You forgave me all of it. You forgave the sins I'll commit tomorrow already. How electric is God's grace that he's forgiven it all? It's off the ledger. It was nailed to the cross. Every bit of it got left in the tomb. All of it. So yes, I sin, I need to confess, I need to repent, but to turn it into praise. Praise, I'm already, already forgiven. Verse 9 is not addressed to believers. Verse 9 is is addressed to those who are still in darkness. Verse 9 is addressed to those who say, in essence, I'm not a sinner, or say, I don't need a Savior Verse 9 is a plea from the God of light to everyone who is still in darkness to be honest and to come clean. Will you humble yourself? Will you open your eyes and actually look into your heart? And will you confess that you are in fact a sinner and in darkness and in death? Are you willing to own your sin? I mean, are you willing to admit and recognize that that is your status? And that God's plea in that moment, he says, I've got something better for you. Let me shine my light into your life that you may be saved. Let me shine light that you may be forgiven. Let me light shine so you can turn from a creature of darkness into a creature of light so that me and you, so that we can have eternal relationship forever and ever and ever. So have you confessed? Have you confessed that to God? Have you confessed that you are a sinner? Have you confessed your sin to God? Have you confessed your need for the Savior? The scariest words in the Bible are in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's how badly we can be deceived. And everyone in this room needs to hear this. That is how badly... We can be deceived. We can walk around earth and say, no, I'm good. I'm right with God. I'm in good relationship with God. Me and God are okay with one another. I even go to church. Like, look at Jesus' words in that text. Even those who've cast out demons and performed mighty works. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And what's on our spiritual resume? I went to church 60% of the time, threw a few bucks in an offering basket. I mean, are any of us casting out demons on a daily basis and performing miracles? Because, I mean, I think we're going to have to ratchet up beyond the people in that text. 
if we're even going to have a chance. Could you imagine that that's how badly we can be deceived? I'm okay with God. When I die, I'm going to heaven. And then to show up there and see the Lord Almighty face to face and hear the absolute worst words that any human ear could ever hear, Jesus himself saying, I don't know you. You spent your life on earth saying, we're good, we're in fellowship. I don't know you. I'm of the light and you're of the darkness. Depart. So a couple of churches ago, I was at Apex Baptist. I was there, I don't remember, 10 years or so on staff and so forth. It's a man by the name of Terry Bradham. Model Christian, folks. Model Christian. Pillar of godliness. This dude knows the Bible. He teaches Sunday school. Youth leader. Deacon of the church. The church was like 700 people. One of the deacons. Head deacon. Different times and seasons in his life. I mean, from, from our perspective, he was a model and an example to follow. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Just do what Terry does. Act like Terry. Follow him. Let him mentor you. Like all of us, staff and other people in the church, like Terry, Terry's, Terry, like follow, like let him mentor you. Then one day at the end of a worship service, Terry comes forth to address the entire church. And shocked everyone. He says, I've been living a lie. All these years, I thought I was saved. All these years, I thought I was fine with God. And I just realized recently, that was a lie. I just realized it was all just work and stuff and lift and checking it off. And I mean, we're all like, are you kidding me? But here's the thing that, praise God, that Terry found out before it was too late. Praise God that God gave him a spoiler alert. That God did not let him enter into eternity without first knowing. Praise God that because God intervened in his heart and his eyes opened up to the truth, that now he won't hear the worst words ever. Depart from me, I never knew you. Instead, whenever he passes, he will hear the best words ever. Welcome home. Welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. He was deceived for 50 years. And finally one day he was willing to be honest and evaluated his heart honestly and humbly and gave his life to the Lord. Praise God for that. So some of you know that a few weeks ago I got to get to the mountains, went to Linville Caverns. It's kind of a cool cave structure, like a mountain, this cave thing that runs in. And you go today, you, can, you walk in, there's a door, there's walkways, there's lights. But originally, that's not what it looked like. It was discovered like in the 1800s by accident. There's this tiny little stream that runs out of it. And some people notice fish going in and out. So like, huh. Like, and there's like a, there was like a little slit basically in the side of the mountain. So people started kind of like peeping their heads in. Well, in the 1930s, two utes youths, um, decided they wanted to go in and explore it. And so the two went in, and one was carrying a lantern. And so this thing runs pretty deep, and it branches out everywhere. So they're as deep as they can possibly get. And let me tell you, there are places you're like, 
you're having to suck it in kind of a thing. Like I couldn't get through a lot of it back in the day. And um, they slip. One of them slips, and the lantern went into water. So now there's no light. There's no windows. It is pitch black. It took them two days to find their way out. Two days in complete darkness. And you know how they found their way out? They felt the stream. Which way is the current going? In two days, they followed that current until it brought them to the light. Let me tell you, there's some people in here, and I don't know who, but I know this. There's someone or more in here. You're in darkness. And there's a stream of the gospel right now that you need to put your hands into and let it lead you to the light. You stop pretending and just be honest. Stop fooling yourself, lying to yourself, lying to God, lying to the people next to you, lying to church, lying to whomever. Will you actually stick your hands in the water and let it lead you to the light? Like you're not here by accident. You're hearing the gospel beckoning you out of the darkness and into light. Your spouse, maybe your friends, children, neighbors are speaking truth into your life. Yesterday, last week, the last 10 years, and all of it is a stream where God's like, will you follow this to the light? And I'm certain that there's someone in here. I mean, they're just feeling that sense inside. It's like, man, I'm in darkness. Said, Don't say no. Don't say no to the Lord. Don't say no to grace. So I want to ask the priest to come up. We're going to sing a closing song. And for all of us, I just want to sit here. Just bow your heads and close your eyes and just pray and be honest. No one does themselves any, any, any good by lying to themselves about this. Our hearts are wickedly deceptive. And praise God that his voice is loud and his voice is clear and he is good and he's gracious. He doesn't want anything bad for you. He wants everything good for you. So that's why we open up the Bible and read it. And that's why someone gets up and preaches. And that's why we sing and have relationships. Can we be honest and learn and grow? And then in the moment when God calls to be transferred from darkness to light. With all heads bowed and all eyes closed. I'm just going to ask this question. No one's watching. But if you're here this morning and you realize that you've never stepped into the light of God, if you've never received eternal life, and you want to confess to God that you are a sinner, that you want to confess to God that you need Jesus Christ, you want to confess to God that you need his grace, would you just raise your hand where you're sitting? Praise God. With all eyes closed and all heads bowed, 
I just want everyone right now just to celebrate as two people raised their hands and they want us to receive Jesus as their Lord. Two people just now have entered into God's eternal light. As for the rest of us, if that is a decision that we've made in the past at some point, you need to live with the boldness and the assurance that you are forgiven, that you are a child of light. Now live it out with Christ at the center of your life, Christ the cornerstone of your life. God, I thank you so much for your wonderful grace for life and second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Thank you, Lord, that you do not rest and just let us keep lying to ourselves, Lord, that you in boldness like a lion storm into our hearts to awaken us, Lord. You do not want to leave us in despair. You want us to be a people of hope. Thank you, Father, that we can live and walk in your light that we can have fellowship with you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to purge us of our sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting us. I pray, Lord, that we would live in assurance and in the know. In Jesus' name, amen.